Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the incarnation of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is the Reverend Dr. Carl Fabritius. He is the pastor of Our Father's Lutheran Church in Greenfield, Wisconsin. Pastor Fabritius, welcome to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me, Pastor Smith. Well, it is a great pleasure to have you on Concord Matters and to talk about the incarnation of Christ, especially as this week we will celebrate the great feast in the church year, the Nativity of Our Lord or Christmas. And as we look at the theme of the incarnation of Christ today, I want us to focus in what I've really wanted to do in this series, which is to answer the question, what is it to be a confessional Lutheran with regard to various topics and themes that we look at? That we would look at and be formed, of course, by Scripture, and then also our faithful teaching of Scripture as reflected in our Lutheran confessions, the Book of Concord. That this would then all be reflected in our faithful confession and in what we do in our church services and in the living of our Christian life and faith. And so hopefully that's been coming out in this series of all the various topics and themes that we've looked at from why Concord matters for the care of souls and for worship and for how we think about the architecture and art of our worship space and all the other themes. And last week we looked at the advent of Christ with Pastor Stuckwish, and today's show is kind of picking up and developing on that same idea of using the time of the church year that we are in to give us a theme to look at. So again, as we're coming into Christmas this week, and just for the benefit of our listeners, this program and the other regular programs on KFUO will be taking a break for a few weeks as we'll have special 12 days of Christmas programming here on KFUO. So be sure to tune in for that. But as we won't have any shows in the actual Christmas season of the church year, I wanted to then take this opportunity to talk about one of the predominant themes of Christmas and what I think at least anyway is also an important theme in the book of Concord, which is that Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh, that he became incarnate among us. So as we get going here, Pastor Fabritius, I'd like to go ahead and start with one of my regular questions in this series, which is, as you serve as a pastor in the parish, what is important to teach people what it means to be confessional about the incarnation of Christ? Well, that's a broad topic in one sense, but I certainly would say it starts with realizing how important it is that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Pastor Stuckwish actually sort of led into this last week with some good comments on the second article. But what I've found in the parish, particularly in the last 20 years or so, is people need to really understand that the Word became flesh. More and more, they see it as a spiritualization of the Christ, almost. And when you do that, it affects your view of the resurrection, the question of the crucifixion. These are the heart of the faith. 
And it's understandable in this sense, the early centuries of the church were spent debating really the question of whether he was really God in the flesh. And you see it in St. John's Gospel. You see it in the debates of the early Christian church. And you see it in the Reformation, quite frankly, as well, the question of Jesus and his work in the flesh. And the church has to always confess clearly that this is God in the flesh when we talk about Jesus. That affects our life as Christians. How do we face death? How do we go about our daily life of good works? It flows out of understanding that God became flesh and he tabernacled. He lived for a while. He dwelled among us. This is the eternal God who did this. It's not just some nice little story. This is changes and alters everything because he doesn't destroy the humanity when he takes it on. You know, there's the quotations you have from the church fathers that talk about how the fact that man is not consumed by the divinity, and we'd expect that to happen. But when he comes, he doesn't change himself. He simply takes the manhood into the divinity. A very important thought that we express, I think, best of all in the Athanasian Creed, perhaps, but certainly it's going on in the church fathers. You talk about assuming the humanity again and again in the church fathers. So the Lutherans wanted to be clear. They believed that, and we need to be firm in our confession yet today about that. Yeah, and picking up on what you said there, that especially in our modern age and so forth, though it's really been going on for a long time, this spiritualization of Christmas, you said, or I might even put it another way, that it's not even just a spiritualization of it. It's kind of become kind of kitschy and almost cliche among us. You know, we want to hear the Luke 2 reading and we tend to look to kind of the, I don't know, picturesque gathering of Christmas Eve services and the Luke 2 reading and all of the sentimentality of the kids dressing up as shepherds and sheep and angels. And people really seem to enjoy that. And it is God's word and the true account of Christ's birth. And I'm not trying to degrade the Luke 2 reading or our children learning the story or anything like that. Not at all. But it was really striking to me early on in my ministry, and maybe even before I was a pastor, when I was still a parishioner and growing up in the church, but it really stood out to me how on Christmas Day, the celebration of Christ's Mass, what we get is the John 1 reading for our gospel text on that day. And it really just kind of confronted me with this reality of, that's really the beauty of Christmas. That's what we may kind of miss, what is there in the Luke 2 reading, but when we're caught up in just the picture of the nativity scene that Luke 2 gives us, we almost lose the fact of what John gives us in his Christmas narrative, which is that the eternal word of God takes on human flesh and makes its dwelling among us. I mean, that just seems quite striking to me and really quite countercultural even. I mean, certainly the broader culture has completely abandoned the reality of Christmas and has just gone to sentimentality of this season entirely. But even there, you can see secular pagans in pop culture who are even comfortable with the nativity scene and even the playing of what has traditionally been considered Christmas hymns as background music at malls and so forth this time of year. But it's always stood out to me that those things tend to just be sort of background sentimentality for the season even for some who do maintain some loose affiliation with the church. I mean, the Christmas Eve service tends to be the more heavily attended service, and that may be for a variety of reasons, but it seems to stand out to me that there's nothing really all that uncomfortable about a baby being born in a stall surrounded by sheep and cattle, and even popular culture is okay with singing about that. But what so many really seem to not be interested in or comfortable with is Christmas portrayed as God coming in human flesh. There's nothing sentimental about that. 
Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should abandon our Christmas pageants or the reading of Luke 2 or anything like that, but it does seem to me that there's something quite striking about how much attention the Luke 2 reading tends to get this time of year, and yet how little attention the John 1 reading gets. Yes, and I think what you probably found, too, is that they say, Pastor, why'd you read that? You know, they want that Luke 2 thing, but I like Luther on that Luke 2 thing. He's going along with that reading, and he's talking about what the church fathers talked about, you know, the manger being the place of feeding. You can go to the sacrament with that, or the wood of the manger becomes the wood of the cross. So yes, you've got the manhood, but who is it that it's dying on the cross? God has become man. He's taken on real flesh and blood. It's God who's adored there. The shepherds come and they worship him. And when the Magi eventually come, they adore him. And in fact, St. Athanasius says in his book on the Incarnation that we are required to adore the human flesh because that's where the Lord and God is. He is right there. And you get this in the church fathers a lot. They're talking about the manhood, but they don't abandon the subject of the fact that he's also true God in the flesh. And I think this sort of fascination with the kitschiness you used as a phrase, I'll go with that, the cuteness of it all. They like the feeling of Luke 2 without really going into the meaning and the depth of it. He's laid in a manger, just like he's wrapped up in the manger. And what's going to happen at the end of the gospel? You get the wood of the cross and he's wrapped up again. He came to suffer and die. And this is God who came to suffer and die. He came to set us free. This is not cutesy stuff. It is comforting stuff to see that God is in the human flesh there in the manger. How much more joy can you have that God would actually come in a way that's not frightening and our humanity is not consumed? I keep going back to these words of Leo that I read when I was preparing for this. It's not consumed. Rather, by taking the humanity in, he gives us a seat in heaven. He prepares the way for us to be there as well. You brought in there the church fathers, and obviously, as you said, a big issue, the church fathers dealt with it. And in a little bit here, we're going to look at the Book of Concord there, and we'll see the incarnation of Christ very directly referenced. But before we get there, I want to develop just a little bit more the other places in our Lutheran confession where we see the incarnation addressed. And the thing that made me think about that was that you brought up the point with the John 1 reading, people saying, well, pastor, why did you pick that? Sometimes I get that comment with the readings, but where I often hear that is in terms of the hymns and people saying, well, pastor, why did you pick those hymns instead of the hymns that we'd like to sing? You know, again, this has kind of become a cliche among traditional confessional liturgical type Lutherans kind of picking on the, shall we say, more Methodist or revivalist hymns that have become associated with Christmas that tend to talk more about, you know, the livestock that are gathered around there and what the weather may have been like and all the details, if you will, of the Christmas image. And again, many of those hymns just kind of become sentimentalized and give us just this, as you say, cutesy image of the Christmas that we develop. But our Lutheran hymns are really quite different and distinct. I think of Luther's great hymn, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come, that is really quite different than a lot of the popular Christmas songs of other traditions. I mean, just that it goes on for 15 verses, but (laughs) in our Lutheran Christmas hymns, we tend to see a lot more theology and a distinct confession about the incarnation in them. So do you want to talk about our hymnody and where we see the confession of our theology of the incarnation there? Now, I could get in trouble for saying this, but you know, people seem fascinated with Silent Night, for example, when really it doesn't have a whole lot of depth to it. But you go to a hymn like, Oh, Jesus Christ, thy manger is. Just the powerful reflection on John 1.14. 
O Jesus Christ, thy manger is, my paradise at which my soul reclineth. For there, O Lord, doth lie the word, made flesh for us, here in thy grace forth shineth. I mean, the first verse leads you into the powerful statement of God in the flesh. And then, he whom the sea and wind obey, doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own Son, with us art one, dost join us and our children in our weakness. How can you get through those first two verses without being the emotions bubbling up? But I know that in TLH, it was neglected. I sang it in my household because of my father, who was always wanting to make sure we sang old Lutheran hymns. But it seemed to disappear from the radar. I'm so happy that it's back. And my people love singing it. It's become very popular because of the power of it. But the personal side of it, you get to verse 4 and you say, Thou Christian heart, be of good cheer. All this language about the incarnation, where you're confessing so much about God in the flesh. Now, Silent Night, I'm not going to never sing it. I'm just going to point out it needs a little help. And the help of singing the Lutheran hymns with it gives you some good content to it. And we could go to the other ones. We could talk about one that's almost never sung, the Luther hymn, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth. But the one you brought up, From Heaven Above, 15 verses, and you really need to sing them all. I know that's un-American of me, but you can break them up. Sing maybe one before and then one during communion. I don't know, part of it then and part of it later. But to get that confession of God being there in the manger, not in the rich robes of kings, but in the simple humanity. It's just a beautiful and deep, powerful, and yes, even though my wife jokes and says that I don't have any emotions, the truth is the emotions are there when you're singing those words and they're tied to a melody. And it is, as St. Ambrose would say, you're learning to confess the faith in an even almost angelic way. The voice of the angels as you sing, and almost like you're joining in the angels that night who sang at the birth of Christ to confess so clearly what Christ has done for us. Yeah, absolutely. And just as you brought in, oh, Jesus Christ, thy manger is. It's a beautiful hymn by Paul Gerhardt. Just go check out, do a Google search sometime about Paul Gerhardt and what he experienced in his life and ministry. I mean, you want to talk about life that is lived under the cross. He had a heavy burden of it. And yet the beautiful words that he writes in his hymns, which confess the comfort of the Christian faith amidst that, it's just wonderful especially as we maybe consider our life lived under the cross in our world today. I know Gerhard's hymns have certainly been a great comfort to me, but his hymns are deep and rich theologically and poetically, which unfortunately means that they're just not always accessible to many people today. We just aren't prepared and educated for those sorts of things anymore. It takes work. We have to think about the words and what they mean. And so unfortunately, I think the current situation in our culture is that the only kind of music that most people are prepared to handle is that of our consumerist culture, where the music is more passive and doesn't require much interaction with it beyond just a shallow emotional feeling it may or may not give you. So yeah, I think people are going to gravitate more towards those shallow songs, unfortunately. But I don't think you're really going to have to worry too much about getting in trouble about talking about Silent Night as being shallow. I mean, probably a pretty selective audience that listens to a show like this in the first place, but also I've probably run off anyone who might listen to the show that would get upset about such things with how often I've talked about away in the manger, especially as we've gotten into some of those various heresies about the incarnation. I've often brought up the heretical understanding that I think is conveyed in the line about how Jesus doesn't cry when he wakes. I mean, how's that even relevant to sing him not to try and make the point that Jesus somehow isn't a human baby that would cry? 
besides as a father of a child who had colic for five months, I, you know, could maybe connect a little more with a Jesus who cried and lived under the sin and brokenness of this world and all the struggles of it that certainly Jesus entered as a baby to rescue us from. That would be a faithful confession to sing. And that's the kind of things that you actually do see reflecting in Gerhardt's hymns. But, you know, I guess that's not as cutesy, I guess. I like the Jesus who wants to get dirty for us. You know, he's born in the stinky area where all the animals are. It's cool. It's not, you know, snow, but it is, you know, outdoors. He's exposed. This is a Jesus who enters into darkness right away. He's the one who desires to really get himself dirty so that he can save us. He covers himself in our filth, so to speak, so that we might be made clean. And I think the birth narrative is so much about that. The word became flesh. He actually got himself dirty. This is not a God who is far off, but the God who is near. And it's an amazing thing to be able to confess that Christ is born. He's not just the God far off. And, well, another hymn, All My Heart Again Rejoices, where you say, God is man, man to deliver, and the Son now is one with our blood forever. Not just a passing little 33 years. He's one with our blood forever. Now that is comforting. That changes the way we view everything as a Christian. Because we live in a world, particularly now, you know, where people are trying to stay away from germs, try to avoid disease, do all these things. And Jesus doesn't do that. He comes and he gets dirty. He's surrounded by germs. He's conceived in the womb of the Virgin. He spends nine months there, 40 weeks inside the Virgin's womb in danger because it's dangerous in a woman's womb. He's surrounded by the dirt of the world, by the danger of the world, but he does it all because of his great love for us. And this is the confession we want people to hear on Christmas. This is not a God who stays away, but he's God and man united so that our flesh can have hope. We can know with certainty that God does care about us. He just isn't a passing, you know, here for a while, do a few miracles, and it's over. He is with us forever, and he joins himself to us. So as we sing in other hymns, in heaven we're going to see the wounds that will be on his hands and his feet and his side, because they're the marks of victory. But he had to take on that flesh first. He had to become one with us. I think that's a really important point that you just made and really returns us again to kind of where you started us off, how important it is for us in faith to recover the faithful teaching of the incarnation. Because you just said that confession we hear on Christmas is that we have a God who does not stay away, but who is here with us forever. And so we can know with certainty that God does care about us. And we certainly see that reflected in Jesus's earthly life and ministry as well. I mean, at a time in the first century when everybody stayed away from the lepers, he goes to them and he heals them. That's who Jesus is. He doesn't just sit up in heaven and, you know, kind of look down on us and our sad state and misery in the world and stay far off. No, he's a God of love and mercy who enters into this broken creation. And then while here, he goes up to the lepers. He doesn't leave them in their isolation and loneliness. He comes to them, he touches them, and he brings them into community again. That's a Jesus, as you said earlier, who gets dirty. He comes to the unclean and the outcasts, and he is physically with them. I think that's a kind of care that our world certainly needs to know from God today. I mean, COVID has taught us to be afraid of everyone and to stay away because they might be dangerous to us. And our culture wants to keep pastors away from nursing homes and hospitals and to keep people away from churches because they say it's too dangerous for something that they don't think is all that necessary. 
But at least we crazy Lutherans say that we're not all right with that because we believe in a God who comes to us in a real and physical way. He enters into the mess of this world, even at his own risk, ultimately being crucified for us. And we, as servants of Christ, should follow him in that as well. I don't know, maybe I'm taking this down a bit of a side tangent here, but I was just thinking as you were talking here that when we consider our confession of the incarnation, that influences how we see God, what he is doing, and how he regards us. And that is going to influence what we care about and believe is important then too. The incarnation affects everything we do and changes our way of looking at the world. Remember, Christianity comes along believing in the incarnation, and they do things like pick up children who have just been laid on the roadside to die. It made no sense to people. Then they go and they visit people who are sick with diseases that people didn't want to be around. They went and tried to care for those people. The incarnation changes the way you look at the world around you. It should anyway, because God came in this human flesh of ours. It means something. Of course, we should have known that from creation, where he gives everything into the hand of male and female. But to verify that, he becomes man. He joins us in this creation. He's like us in every way except without sin. And so all this he does for us men and for our salvation. It's just a wonderful thing. In the Nicene Creed, there is that part where traditionally you hear, and was made man. And you reverence in some way at the altar. You recognize just how amazing that is, that he actually became one of us so that we could share in the divinity. I mean, he goes and he stands in line with sinners, with John the baptizer, and has water poured over him. Why? So that our flesh can receive the spirit who dwells over his head there at the baptism in the Jordan. This whole thing of touching the beer of the young man of Nain, that was making himself unclean, but he gives life to the young man. The woman who has the flow of blood for 12 years, you know, that again is the unclean being made clean. His desire for us is always this compassionate love that drives him and in turn drives the church, each one of us. Absolutely. Well said. And Just a few minutes before break here, I also want to pick up this idea sort of from the other side and develop a little bit more here about why it is important to have faithful confession of the incarnation. And I say from the other side because in this series, I've tried to follow the pattern of our confessions. And on the other side of the break, we'll be digging into the confessions specifically for what they have for us to confess about the incarnation of Christ. But in following the pattern of our confessions, especially the formula of Concord, we talk about the positive statements of what we believe, teach, and confess. And I think you've laid out for us really well why it is important to recover a faithful confession of the incarnation. It influences everything that we do. But on the other side of this, there's sort of the negative statements, the things that we reject and condemn, because that is important for our confession of the incarnation too. That the denial of the incarnation could certainly lead us into a certain direction also. I mean, I think you already hinted at this just a little bit of that when you talked about those who would leave children to die on the road and would not want to care for those who would have diseases. While positively, the confession of the incarnation led Christians into acts of care and mercy, it would seem like a denial of the incarnation is what led some negatively to their conclusions. So again, with just a few minutes before break here, what would you say is important for our confession of the incarnation that comes from the negative side, or I might say the danger of a denial of the incarnation? That's a broad topic, but let's just focus on one thing. I think the fact that the incarnation is really not at the center of people's thoughts has led to false views on two important things. The resurrection of the body is not as strongly enforced. If you don't really see 
God in the flesh, then the body becomes less important. Likewise, the sacrament of the altar we could talk about also. The question of what is it that we receive at the altar? If God isn't joined to man in the incarnation, how could it ever be that he's joined to bread and wine? But the word became flesh, and now the word proclaims that he is in bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood. So those are the two main things. Yeah, and once again, I think that is going to be reflected in what we do or do not do. And we're going to see some more of this on the other side of the break as we're going to do some reading from the Book of Concord and talk about how that leads us in our faithful confession of the incarnation of Christ. So please join us right after this break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Carl Fabritius about why Concord Matters for the Incarnation of Christ. And in the first half of the show, we laid a broad overview of how we talk about the Incarnation, important things to think about in terms of the Incarnation of Christ, and we saw where we see that reflected in Scripture and the Church Fathers and our Lutheran hymnody. Great things you highlighted there for us, Pastor Fabritius, for key places where we see the confession of the Incarnation. But as is the intent of this show, we want to dig into the Lutheran Confessions, the Book of Concord, and see the faithful confession that we hold as Lutherans, using that great line from the Formula of Concord, what we believe, teach, and confess about our Christian faith, formed from Scripture, of course. And as I use that phrasing, we believe, teach, and confess, I think that is one of the excellent places where we can go to look at here. As you brought out earlier, Pastor Fabricius, there's so many places in the Book of Concord that we could go to. We could go to the second article of the creed, both in the small catechism and the large catechism. We could, of course, also go to the Augsburg Confession. Just all of our documents in the Book of Concord address this matter in some way because, again, as you stated in the first half, it is already a controversy in the early church that is addressed in Scripture, and it is addressed by the church fathers and at the Reformation, and we continue to see it as an issue still today. So to look at just one place in the Book of Concord for our faithful confession with regard to the incarnation of Christ, I think one of the best places to go is the Formula of Concord, and especially the Solid Declaration has some excellent stuff here in Article 8 of the article on the person of Christ. And so we're going to go ahead and read a section from the Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord. And once again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I'm going to read from Article 8 of the Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord on the person of Christ and pick up with paragraphs 11 and 12 and then skip to paragraph 17. All of this section is excellent. Certainly commend it to our readers. But as we talk about the incarnation of Christ, I want to get at least these paragraphs that I want Pastor Fabricius to lead us through our teaching here on the incarnation. So this is paragraph 11 in the affirmative statements of Article 8 
from the solid declaration of the formula of Concord. We believe, teach, and confess that now, since the Incarnation, each nature in Christ does not exist by itself so that each is or makes up a separate person. These two natures are so united that they make up one single person, in which the divine and the received human nature are and exist at the same time. So now, since the Incarnation, there belongs to the entire person of Christ personally, not only his divine nature, but also his received human nature. So without his divinity and also without his humanity, the person of Christ or the incarnate Son of God is not complete. We mean the Son of God who has received flesh and become man, citing John 1 verse 14. Therefore, Christ is not two distinct persons, but one single person, even though two distinct natures are found in him, unconfused in their natural essence and properties. We also believe, teach, and confess that the received human nature in Christ has and retains its natural essential properties. But over and above these, through the personal union with the deity and afterward through glorification, Christ's human nature has been exalted to the right hand of majesty, power, and might over everything that can be named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, citing Ephesians 1 verse 21. Then I'm going to jump down to paragraph 17 and go through paragraph 19. This is a bit longer, but really excellent to help us in our faithful confession of the incarnation here. Against this condemned heresy, the Christian church has always simply believed and held that the divine and the human nature in the person of Christ are so united that they have a true communion with each other. The natures are not mingled in one essence, but as Dr. Luther writes, they come together in one person. So on account of this personal union and communion, the ancient teachers of the church, before and after the Council of Chalcedon, frequently used the word mixture in a good sense and with true discrimination. To prove this, many testimonies of the fathers, if necessary, could be quoted. These are to be found frequently also in the writings of our divines, and they explain the personal union and communion using the illustration of the soul and body and of glowing iron. For the body and the soul, as also fire and iron, have communion with each other. This is not by a phrase or mode of speaking or in mere words, that is, so that it is merely a form of speech or mere words, but the communion is true and real. Nevertheless, there is no mixing or equalizing of the natures introduced like when mead is made from honey and water, which is no longer pure water or pure honey, but a mixed drink. It is far different in the union of the divine and the human nature in the person of Christ. It is a far different, more grand, and altogether indescribable communion and union between the divine and the human nature in the person of Christ. Because this union and communion, God is man and man is God. Neither the natures nor their properties are intermingled, but each nature keeps its essence and properties. As far Article 8 from the Solid Declaration of the Formula. All right, so Pastor Fabertius, go ahead, lead us through what we should learn about what we believe, teach, and confess about the Incarnation from this section of our Lutheran Confessions. Well, I'd like to begin with just that whole two natures, the important terminology of the natures, reminding ourselves that human nature was created good and still is. The problem is, of course, the corruption of our natures. And that has to be emphasized because some people get a little bit nervous about saying that he has the full human nature. No, human nature was intended to be good. It was created good. And it's only because of the corruption of our sin that we see it as it is. So he takes on that nature fully. He takes the human nature into the divine, that communion and union, as the language is. It's a personal union, and it's a mystery beyond human words in many ways. 
and beyond our confession, but they've tried to speak of it. And I like the fact that they use the honey and water thing. It's not like that. It is much more like the glowing iron, where it's still iron, and yet you have the heat, certainly there, or the soul and body that are one. Now, I know in this world, people like to act like soul and body or, you know, two different things or maybe don't even exist, but we confess that biblically. And so it's possible to reach, because of that union and communion, to state plainly, God is man and man is God. Now, when you play this out, jump into another time around the death of Christ, for example, this is why Lutherans can sing a hymn, O Darkest Woe, where you say God himself is dead, because he's both God and man. And people who don't want to say that get in dangerous territory. It's also true that we will say about Jesus that Mary is the mother of God. Now, sometimes Lutherans get nervous about that, but you need to confess that because he is both God and man in her womb. God is man, man to deliver. I mean, I keep coming back to that phrase. God needs to take us into the Godhead. We can't get there on our own. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, to quote another hymn. I'm big on hymns, as you can tell. But they help us get that deep in our conscience, tying the melody to the confession so that we confess the truth about these things. The heresies that he's not really God and man, the heresy that he only seemed to be man, the heresy that God really couldn't join himself completely to man. Even the dangerous position John Calvin took when he said that at the death, somehow only the man Jesus dies. These things affect our overall view. If it's just a man who dies, where is our salvation? We need the God-man joined completely. And if we're going to go to heaven in the ascension, we need the God-man. His human flesh is glorified so that our human flesh can be glorified. It's a wonderful, reassuring thing. And so we look on the infant in the manger and we say, here's the one who created heaven and earth, and he's willing to become this gentle child who cries, who's part of creation, who's, to go back to my earlier phrase, he gets dirty. He had to have his diapers changed. He had the whole thing had to happen. And maybe that's a little bit more than people sometimes want to say because they want to keep him pristine. No, he's not pristine. He's the one who loves us so much. Nothing's going to get in the way. And he wants to bring us screaming and kicking, maybe like an infant, into eternal life. And so he gives us baptism, for example, where that infant who may cry and scream about the baptism and may have accidents there while it's going on, that very infant is the one he wants to bring into the kingdom of heaven. And so he became the infant, God and man in one. Yeah, I think that's the real hub of all of this is God is man, man to deliver. As you keep quoting that great Paul Gerhardt hymn and Gerhardt always welcome on the show because he just confesses the face so beautifully and simply as we saw that line, almost a direct word for word quote of the solid declaration, article eight. That's where all this comes together. Our confession is not just some dry theology, though to some, what we read from the solid declaration, article eight may sound a bit dense there. But our confession comes down to that simple point. Christmas is all about our salvation. I mean, that sounds obvious. And at some level, we all know that is what Christmas is about. But again, as we've talked about, I think that just often gets lost in the sentimentality of Christmas or the spiritualization, as you said. But because that Christmas reality is so important for our salvation, that's why we strive for faithful confession of the incarnation. The person of Christ is related to the work of Christ. 
And I like how you develop that into other points that we see that play out in the work of Christ, not just his birth as the son of God and son of Mary, but also the son of God on the cross. And I hope I'm not going off into too much of a side tangent here, but I'm glad that you brought in paragraph 12 there. And I'm glad that you took us there to talk about how this matters also for the ascension of Christ. I mean, the fact that Christ ascends in the body and sits at the right hand of power and might over everything, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. I mean, I don't think that gets enough attention. I mean, that's a really powerful and important image for us to also have in view as we contemplate this holy season of Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. That all of it is together from his birth to the crucifixion to the resurrection, his ascension to Pentecost and the ministry of the church and word and sacrament and his coming again in glory. All of it revolves around who the person of Christ is. He is incarnate, God who comes to his people in real physical and tangible ways. And that's our comfort. That's our joy. And ultimately, that's what we're being led to, that God is doing something with our human bodies. And he does that by taking on our human flesh. I found myself reflecting upon this just last week as I was preparing for the week of Christmas and all the services and so forth. I know you said you like hymns. I love hymns too. And as I get ready for services and prepare my sermons, I often go through the hymns, well, because they're often better than the sermons I preach anyway. But I was reflecting on that great Christmas hymn, Of the Father's Love Begotten. And as I looked at it, a line right in the first stanza really jumped out at me this year, where it says, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see. I mean, that's a just powerful line that maybe I've considered before. But when I thought about it this year, I found myself thinking back to when I sang that last year. And I had no idea the craziness that the future year would see. I mean, just no idea. None of us did, really. I mean, we were just beginning to see COVID develop in China. But in December, we really had no idea how in just a few months it would have such an effect on our lives here in the U.S. for an entire year to come. But Jesus ascended and sitting at the right hand of power did. Even more, he knew what we would face all the way back in the 5th century when those words were written. And even as they were written to confess the faith and the things that have been in those days. And even more, that God knew all about it back at his incarnation in the flesh when he came among us that first Christmas. And even as the hymn sings in just the line before, air before the worlds began. And that's a real comfort to us to know that Jesus, our brother in the flesh, is sitting there at the right hand of power in heaven, and he is over all of it. He's over everything that is, that has been, and is to come. And precisely because he knew what we would face in the things that are here in our days, that have been, and that future years will see, that is why he entered into this world and took on the human flesh, all the sinful brokenness of it and all the trials and tribulations of it. He's over all of it and entered into it to get dirty, as you said, so that he would provide our way of salvation through it. I mean, that's the hub. By entering into the world and suffering these things and more with us in the flesh and to triumph over all of it. That's our salvation. And now he comes to us in his word and sacrament in the church to comfort us with his real presence as we endure the tribulations with the assurance of our salvation. And he's there right at the right hand of God in the flesh. And he assures us that he's coming again to bring us in the flesh to be with him forever. That he will deliver us from sin and death. Just, I mean, as you've laid out so very well for us, this is why it is so important for us to have a faithful confession of the incarnation. It just gives so much more comfort and peace in the midst of our times or in whatever the future year shall see. Because through it all, Christ our brother comforts us with his real presence and leads us to the eternal joy in his presence forever. I mean, I, again, I hope I'm not spinning off into a monologue here now. I don't want to do that. I asked you to be my guest on the show and I <laughs> want to hear what you have to say. But as you've been talking here, I just kind of thought, 
this really is the hub and is a great thing that you've highlighted for us. Yes, and I'm gonna, one of my favorite art pieces, I'm going to go a little bit different direction, but emphasize something here, has the infant Christ standing on a grave with the capstone of the grave open. So you see an empty grave so that you see the victorious Christ child. He's still an infant, but he's conquering death in the grave for us. That and Okay, we're going to quote him again. And that is that language of softly from his lowly manger, Jesus calls one and all. You are safe from danger. Children from the sins that grieve you, you are freed. All you need, I will surely give you. So it's been a crazy year, like you said. But you know what? COVID is just death stalking us. And it's always stalking us. Sometimes it was flu or pneumonia or you name it. It's just death, people. And look, the infant Christ stands upon the tomb and says, here's your victory over it. And he calls you from the manger and says, look, you need this victory over death and I'm here for you. Well, and I like that you brought in art there too, because one, that's a beautiful image, but also because that was a previous show that I've done in this series, a couple of shows really, about why Concord matters for our confessional art, our Christian art. One of those shows we had Edward Riojas on, who's a Lutheran artist, and I thought he talked so well about how an image portrays our confession. I mean, again, so much of our confession is reflected in all that we do within our Christian lives of faith, that it forms and shapes not only our theology, as we see in the Book of Concord, but again, I always like to emphasize this, it's not just dry theology for the sake of doing academic theology. No, not at all. Rather, this faithful confession of what Scripture gives us to believe, teach, and confess is reflected in what the church has confessed and continues to confess in our artwork and our hymnody and in our daily lives and how we view the work that we do and how we live in the body. That's what it is to be a confessional Lutheran. And that's why I wanted to do this series because I wanted to emphasize that our confession is reflected in everything that we do in the church and in our Christian lives of faith. It actually impacts the nitty-gritty details of our life and everything that we confess with it. So I'm glad that you're bringing in artwork and the hymns and pointing us to places where we can not only see our confession, our theology portrayed, but also as we use these things like artwork in our sanctuaries and homes, as we ponder and meditate upon them, as you were talking about, and as we sing the hymns, we are actually joining the confession ourselves. It's kind of like in the divine service when the pastor says with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven, and then we sing the song to us, we're actually doing it. We are joining the angels and the whole heavenly host, praising God and singing. And that happens also with our confession of the incarnation of Christ. Yes, and I'm gonna, while I'm thinking of it, I want to plug another hymn. We praise you, Jesus, at your birth, attributed to Luther. It's a hymn that's pretty neglected, but I hope that people learn it. I want to get on and talk about this whole thing in terms of it's the Christ Mass we celebrate. We can because he's taken on flesh. And so Luther's image of the manger or even the ancient church we're a beautiful church in town here. It's a Serbian Orthodox church. It has this mosaic, and you've got the manger and a big host in the manger. At the altar, here it's the Christ Mass, because the one who became flesh for us gives us his flesh and blood, that he's one with our blood forever, to quote that verse again. And so now here he is, giving us his flesh and blood. We can only celebrate the Lord's Supper because there is an incarnation because Christ does become man, and so now he can give us this wonderful gift. And the manger is the place of feeding, and that's where we go at Christmas. The Christ Mass, we go and we kneel, and we're like the shepherds or like the magi, kneeling before the Christ, adoring the one who is God and man, who has chosen to give us himself in the Blessed Supper. 
Absolutely. And as you were talking there, it makes me think of another place in the Lutheran Confessions that we can go to talk about why Concord matters for the incarnation of Christ. It's actually the article prior to the section we read from the Solid Declaration earlier. So it's Article 7 on the Lord's Supper, which precedes that article on the person of Christ, but actually sets up the point that they're going to have to thoroughly discuss the doctrine of the person of Christ in Article 8, precisely because of the issue that they had with the sacramentarians with regard to Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. So I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here from Article 7 of the Sala Declaration of the Formula of Concord. This is picking up with paragraph 2. Some sacramentarians strive to use words that come as close as possible to the Augsburg Confession. In the form and way of speech in our churches, they confess that in the Holy Supper, Christ's body is truly received by believers. Still, when we insist that they state their meaning precisely, sincerely, and clearly, they all say this in unison. Christ's true essential body and blood is absent from the consecrated bread and wine in the Holy Supper as far as the highest heaven is from the earth. For their own words, state this. We say that Christ's body and blood are as far from the signs as the earth is distant from the highest heaven. Therefore, they understand this presence of Christ's body not as a presence here on earth, but only with respect to faith. In other words, our faith is reminded and excited by the visible signs just as it is by the word preached. It elevates itself and ascends above all heavens. It receives and enjoys Christ's body, which is present there in heaven. Yes, they say they receive Christ himself together with all his benefits in a true and essential way, but nevertheless only in a spiritual way. For they hold that as bread and wine are here on earth and not in heaven, so Christ's body is now in heaven and not on earth. So nothing else is received by the mouth in the Holy Supper than the bread and wine. And now I'm going to jump down to paragraph 9. Against the sacramentarian's opinion. This is what is taught in the Augsburg Confession from God's word about the Lord's Supper that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and distributed to those who eat the Lord's Supper. The contrary doctrine is rejected. Thus far, the solid decoration. Now, I bring that one in because it's in connection with the Lord's Supper, and our right understanding of that flows forward from what is clearly taught in Scripture and is intricately linked with what we confess about the Incarnation, as you brought in the first half of the show. As we laid out right at the end of the first half of the show and talking about what we reject and condemn, We also don't shy away from saying, look, if you have a wrong understanding of the incarnation and what we're given to confess from scripture here, then that is going to lead you in a dangerous direction. It leads you away from the comfort of the gospel and our salvation. And so we want to hold that faithful teaching. That's what Luther did. And that's what the Lutheran confessors did in the formula of Concord. And I think we need to continue to confess this faithfully in our own day. As you talked about staying away from Christ, the mass, That's really dangerous for us. And as we think about our confession in our own day, I can't help but think once again about all the craziness of our world where people are staying away from church and from the sacrament right now. And they use these same sort of sacramentarian excuses to justify staying away. And I don't think that gives a faithful confession about what we believe when it comes to the incarnation, especially in Christ's Mass, which is ultimately what we celebrate every single Sunday in the Lord's Supper. Yes, if you believe in the Incarnation, get your rear end in the pew. If you believe in the Incarnation, come to the altar. Receive the flesh and blood and confess that he is the one who is your Savior. I just think that's maybe blunt, but it is the most basic confession we make. To stay away from church and to say it's more dangerous, you're still going to the grocery store. You're still going out and about. You're doing this thing and the other thing. Church is not dangerous. Being away from Christ's body and blood, that's dangerous. 
Luther in the catechism, you know, makes that statement about you should at least be there four times a year. Well, I'm afraid in COVID, some people aren't going to be there even in the four times because he's thinking at least you'll go Easter and Christmas and the Ascension. But no, we can't go. It's dangerous. I'm one of those horrible people. I don't even wear a mask in church as the pastor because I'm the incarnational representative of Christ. I'm not going to worry about my people getting me dirty. I'm going to be there like Christ was in the midst of the world and to be that living example of the incarnation. Pastors have a responsibility to confess the faith and members have a responsibility to confess the faith in the incarnation. This flesh of ours is the flesh he came to save from death and he came to be with us. Lo, I'm with you always is not just some spiritualistic thing. He's remembering his baptized. He's remembering those who are the pastors of the church. He's making that promise to us. And it's because he is God and man, and he is one. And we need to realize we've strayed in a real dangerous and embarrassing thing. I had a conversation with somebody who I won't name, but basically they said this may be the most embarrassing time in the history of the church, that people are using a disease to stay away. When in fact, it's precisely the reason we need to be in church, and we need to confess to Christ, and we need what he has to give us. Yeah, and as you say, that's blunt, but I'm definitely with you on this. I think blunt is called for sometimes. Jesus himself was blunt. You mentioned people still going to the grocery store, but staying away from the church. Well, that's because they think that they need groceries, but they don't think that they need the body and blood of Christ. Well, Jesus was blunt to the point on that one in John chapter 6 comes right at the Jews and tells them, hey, you don't need to worry about the bread. Your ancestors all ate bread from heaven in the wilderness and they all died. But Jesus says the real significance is the bread that is my flesh and blood. Those who eat of it will live forever. Now, of course, that's the Sean Smith paraphrase version. (laughs) But again, go check it out. Jesus is blunt and to the point. So much so that there were even those who had been disciples who afterward rebuffed at that and said, whoa, that's a bit rough there, Jesus. And they get upset with him and some even stop following him over it. And we've seen some of that in our churches these days too. But again, as you said, we have a responsibility to confess the faith. And the blunt reality, the truth, is that Jesus' body and blood is the only bread that endures to eternal life. And so our faithful confession on this in the face of the world that wants to just disconnect this from real physical things, that what we do in the church is just somehow all spiritual and spiritualized, well, Jesus hasn't done that. And that can lead us into really dangerous paths and away from the truth that Jesus gives us and our true comfort. And really, as you said, this is just death, which is always stalking us, be it a pandemic or cancer, sudden tragic accidents, or just getting old. And so we need to confess that going to church is not dangerous. Rather, it is because you are in a dangerous world and dying that you need church so that you can really live, that Jesus is the medicine of immortality. And we also want to be clear here, too. It's not like we're trying to be unsympathetic here or hardline and saying, you know, that there's not time for reasonable precautions or that there's not times where you just honestly have justifiable reasons that you're unable to come to church. God gives us our reason to use. That's a first article issue, and maybe we can do a show on that sometime as well. But what we are saying is that what we need to cling to is the truth of Jesus' word, use our sanctified reason, and consider what it is that we are to confess and how we live our lives of faith. Yes, don't tell me I'm killing grandma if I go to visit her, because grandma needs the medicine of immortality, and we need to be faithful in that. And like you said, we use our reason. We use the sanctified reason. We recognize at times that maybe things are, but in general, to just keep grandma in prison 
is far worse than to go and see them in the flesh. You know, we believe that in the flesh we need these things. We need the medicine that really matters. Forget the vaccines. It may or may not work. Forget all these things and come down to the basics of the faith first, and that will shape all our reasoning about the other things. So that, yes, we use medicine because, after all, Christians are the ones who fought for the medicine system and for a system of doctrine and hospitals and all the rest. But in the end, the question is, do you believe that God became man in the flesh, that he really is tabernacling with us, that he really is there in the Blessed Sacrament, that he really is the one summoning you from the manger and saying, come, I have everything you need. I am the Lamb of God. I take away the sins of the world, and I am here to comfort you. We need to be in firm agreement, obviously concord, about the Incarnation, because it affects everything we preach and teach, everything we need to comfort us in this life. It is about knowing God became man because we couldn't go to God. God had to come to us. We couldn't rid ourselves of the curse of death, but God didn't want to leave us dead. He came to give us life. God is man, man to deliver. That is well confessed. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. But thank you, Pastor Carl Fabritius. It's been a great pleasure having you join us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord Matters for the Incarnation of Christ, which is in all things in our Lutheran confession is rightly centered on Christ who comes for you and for your salvation. That is the really important and truly comforting message here at Christmas and always. So we want to wish you all a Merry Christmas this week. Be sure to gather for the celebration of the Incarnation of Christ in Christ's Mass. We'll be taking a break here at Concord Matters for a couple weeks. Be sure to tune in. Special programming here on KFUO for the 12 days of Christmas. We'll be back on January 12th. But thank you for stopping by today. Until next time, keep confessing, church.